So, here we are, Easter Sunday. In the early church, one of the first controversies that the early church had um, was how to celebrate and when to celebrate Easter. So Easter, um, well, from a holiday standpoint, because there is no admonition or instruction in the Scriptures for us to celebrate Easter like we understand the celebration of Easter. Uh, but Easter is the, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a message of hope. Um, for three days earlier, on the Friday, he, he died, which completely upset the hopes of, of, the, of the nation of Israel because they still hadn't figured out exactly what was going on yet. Uh, but the early church quickly as it seems like um, people generally tend to do, entered into controversy. And so the, the earliest church, and so this, this group of people, um, led by a, a man named Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, the group of churches most influenced by like, the Jewish tradition would celebrate Easter um, after the Passover. And so Passover was an established calendar festival for the people of Israel. And so they would celebrate Easter um, three days after the, the Passover. Two, I mean, two days, depending on how you count the three days. And um, the Western Church, Bishop of Rome uh, at the time, uh, they instituted this tradition of celebrating uh, Easter on a Sunday, three days after the the death of Christ on Friday. And so it was always a Friday-Sunday thing for the Western church and for the more Jewish uh, tradition church. It was celebrated um, around Passover and two days after Passover, which is when Christ resurrected on a calendar standpoint. So they just got together and they kind of, you know, they wanted to be unified. And Christ has encouraged his church to be unified and he instructed and prayed for the church to be unified. But the church uh, so they so they got together and they wanted to see these things unified as well and at that point the bishop of of rome and the bishop of smyrna and polycarp was the bishop of smyrna they just said you know let's we'll we'll just go on doing it the way we've done it and we'll agree to disagree because it's not necessarily um an instruction from jesus christ that establishes normative policy for the church it was something that could be used and, and organized by their discretion. Well, uh, eventually it got to the point where the, the Bishop of Rome and the Roman Church established an official holiday, and if you didn't celebrate it the way they did, um, they weren't quite ready to call you a heretic or an apostate, but you weren't allowed fellowship in the church. And so that was just one of many controversies to come, and it got away from being a message of hope. See, when Jesus left or was about to leave, he instructed the church to participate in the Lord's Supper, which is what we celebrate. If you're a member of Twin Cities Church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, every week in our house churches. And Jesus said to, to celebrate his death and his res resurrection as often as we participate in the Lord's Supper, not giving any specific dates or frequencies on when that Lord's Supper should be celebrated. But in Christ's mind, that is when we are to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. As frequently as we participate in the Lord's Supper. So every week, 
We celebrate the death of Jesus Christ, for through his death and blood, uh, he paid for our sins. And every week we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he conquered Satan's sin and death. For death, which is the consequence of sin, no longer was master over humanity. And so today, I want to look back at that message of hope. Not the tradition of, the, of, of Easter as we understand it. Everybody is celebrating Easter. But very few people understand the message of hope and the meaning behind Easter. So I want to look at the, the question and the possibility of hope. I've been reading a book called Culture Care by Makato Fujimura. And in the foreword, Mark Laberton, who is the president of Fuller Seminary, asks this question. In a world that is at once beautiful and pained, glorious and tortured, thriving and anguished, many ask, is there hope? What does it look like? Where and what is it? And in his attempt to begin answering these questions about what is hope, where is it at, what does it look like, he makes this statement. Hope, first of all, must be realistic. That is, hope can be hope only if it admits that which is darkest while urging toward the light. Nothing glib or blind or deflective toward the depth of despair could be a contender for hope. If hope has not been first silenced before the profundity of evil and loss, then such a two-dimensional offering is more scandalous than fruitful. Realistic is not so much concerned about practicality as it is about truthfulness. Now that's a very dense quote. But what he's essentially saying is that the subject of hope, whatever it is that we are putting our hope in, if it can't stand against our darkest fears, if it can't stand against what he considers that which is darkest, if it can't stand against our greatest nightmares, then it's really not something to put hope in. It is scandalous. It's false hope. It's wishful thinking. If we cannot face the darkest moment and hold on to the hope of certain good, which is what hope is, Hope is the confidence and certainty of future good. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, you know, I would like this to happen. It's not, you know, gee, I wish this would come to pass. Hope is the certainty of future good. If we cannot have the subject of our hope be something that can stand against whatever it is we, we would consider to be the darkest, 
then the subject of our hope is futile. And so I want to look at three questions. Is there hope for us personally? Is there hope for those that we love and are closest to? And is there hope for this world? Is there hope for us? Is there hope for those around us? And is there hope for this world? I'm going to be working out of the book of Romans. I know typically Easter messages tend to revolve around the Gospels and the historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection. But the Gospels don't spend very much time on the theology or of the meaning of the resurrection. And if you're familiar with the Gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, 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 the apostles, those closest to Jesus, were confused and alarmed by Jesus' statements that He would die, and then by finally by Jesus' death. And then when reports of His resurrection started to emerge, they would not believe them. Even though Jesus had said a number of times, I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to rise again. They couldn't hardly believe it. And in the death of Jesus Christ, the hopes of Israel and the hopes of the apostles and those closest to Christ, it seemed had been thrown away. It seemed like their hopes had been put in something that was scandalous indeed. The king of Israel dying on the cross next to a couple of thieves. Beaten, naked, shamed, and scorned. And so those men and women that had put their hope in Jesus thought they had put their hope in something futile. Something meaningless. And then three days later, their initial hopes were justified. Death had been beaten. Death had been overcome. Death had been conquered. And so they go up and they ask Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel and fulfill our hopes and our dreams and the things that we have been waiting for and asking for for centuries? And Jesus says, it's not for me or us to know the times that God Himself has appointed, but you're going to take this gospel message throughout the ends of the earth. The message that death has been conquered, that sin has been conquered, that Satan is no longer master over the earthly realm. That message is to go to all nations and all peoples and all languages, and you will be the ones carrying that message. And so that message has gone forth. And we find in the New Testament letters written by these very apostles, the explanation and the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look first at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, excuse me, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we are in a sphere of grace enveloped by God in His power and in His love. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice 
in our darkest moments. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It's not something to be embarrassed by. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And he continues with these ideas in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And He dwells in you if you have believed in the gospel message that Jesus has died on the cross, He's conquered Satan, sin, and death, which brings us as individuals into a place of peace with God. And into a place where we can rejoice in our sufferings because the hope in Christ is so substantial. So imagine your darkest moments, your darkest places, your worst fears, your worst nightmares. Being in that place and being sincerely, not being forced to, but sincerely being able to rejoice. That is the significance of the hope of Jesus Christ in the message of the gospel. So if you believed that message... You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him and is not able to experience the hope. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Life to your mortal bodies. Not eternal life when you get to the kingdom of God that will be in existence for eternity. Right? We don't, we're, not, we're not saved simply so that we can, quote, go to heaven. That's great. But that is not just what the gospel is for. He says, the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you and will give life to your mortal bodies. The bodies that you have now. The bodies that you have now. And so this first question, is there hope for us personally? In the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our darkest places. In the midst of our worst nightmares. What we are experiencing or what we fear we will experience down the road. You know, all of our suffering occurs through our bodies. What we perceive, what we hear, what we see, what we feel, what we think, what we dream. These things are all in our bodies, in our suffering, whether it's mental suffering, whether it's emotional anguish, things like loneliness, whether it's fear or despair, whether it's sickness due to, due to a, 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 an illness, or somebody has hurt us, or we're suffering a disease, or we've had an injury. These are all things that the Spirit empowers in our bodies to give us life. Now we have two ways for addressing the suffering when we experience suffering in our bodies. 
The option that we've seen so far, excuse me, in these passages is endurance. Is endurance. And endurance literally means to persevere through suffering. In fact, we see in the book of Colossians that the power of God at work in us enables us to go through suffering while being joyful and grateful. Now, what I want to impress upon all of us today is that when the Scriptures say to rejoice in our sufferings and that, and that God will bring about a renewal of life in our bodies in the midst of our sufferings and that joy and gratitude is to characterize our sufferings, uh, He's not saying that we force ourselves into this place where we kind of have to, to churn up with all of our strength and, and mental and emotional ability this the statement of, oh, I rejoice. I am glad. That's not what it's talking about. He's talking about a heartfelt experience. A sincere experience. A change inside that sincerely and genuinely is able to say, I am hurting. And I am in pain, but I rejoice. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. So we can endure that way. Or we can do what we call today is self-medication. The Bible calls that sin. So when I say self-medication, what I mean by is we pursue means in any way that we can, to bring ourselves life, to end our suffering. Now, there are legitimate ways to, to alleviate suffering. He's not saying that it's sinful to alleviate suffering in your life or in the lives of others. That is a good thing. We're here to care for one another and comfort one another in our suffering and by God's grace, He has given humanity wisdom over the centuries. Medications and doctors and nurses and all kinds of ways that we can heal the human body and heal our minds. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is are, are things that we pursue that ultimately lead to more damage to ourselves and most likely damage to others. So anything that you can see in the, new, in, in the Scriptures where, where it says to avoid these things, for they are sin. Okay? Drunkenness, or sexual immorality, or stealing. All of those things make us feel good for a short time. Because they are things that, have, that God has created. That God has created to bring life and flourishing to humanity. We have material possessions because we need material possessions to get along in this world. But when I need somebody else's material possessions because they have what I don't have and I want what they have and I steal, what I'm doing is, is saying that God has not provided enough for me to endure. I need to take something from somebody else that God has provided for them. 
So it's a rejection of God's provision for your life and an effort on your own to heal your suffering. Whatever mental suffering you might be experiencing for coveting and not having what you want, or even possibly physical suffering due to the fact that you don't have what you think that you need. Sexual intimacy is something that God, has been, that God has given humanity for the creation of people and for the multiplication of people and for flourishing of human societies from generation to generation to generation and for a husband and wife to share and to bring pleasure to each other. But when it is used outside of that context, it becomes sin. And for those things have been created for that context and we use, end up hurting ourselves and hurting others because it requires trust and commitment long term in order for it to be intimate and special as it is. God has given us food and He's given us drink to sustain us and to make our hearts happy, the Scriptures say. But when we use food and drink gluttonously with debauchery, then those things end up destroying us and making us unhealthy which leads often to the hurting of others. So these things are all sins, but they're all things that we pursue. We, we acknowledge the goodness and the beauty of these things. But we have so much hope in their goodness and so much hope in their beauty that they become functional gods for us. They become functional gods and we sin in, their, in the pursuit of them. No, Jesus calls us to endure. And he, he, he calls us to endure with the promise, with the promise of producing character. Now, all right, that's just one of those comments that our parents and grandparents tell us when we need to be patient. Patience produces character and virtues. Well, character means... Virtuous life. A virtuous life. And it is a resistance. And it is a removing yourself from false gods. See, the production of character is the rejection of idolatry. It's the rejection of idolatry. And so you, you, you make a decision you make a decision to not pursue being fulfilled and to alleviate the suffering through sinful ways. And you say, you know what? I can endure this suffering. I can endure this suffering. Which means I'm going to stop doing those things. It's going to produce greater quality of character in me. And what we see then, once we start living lives characterized by virtue, is we start to see pain and consequences of sin slowly go away. Not 100%. But because sin generally leads to more sin and more sin generally leads to more suffering, when we stop doing those things and we have character being generated in our lives, we start to notice that, you know what, I'm not suffering as much as I used to. And then that returns produces, produces hope. So it goes back to the origin of hope and strengthens our hope now hope has to begin with faith 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that his and that the message of the gospel, his death and resurrection, are an answer to our suffering. If we don't believe that it's an answer to our suffering, we will never enter into the cycle of hope, perseverance, character, more hope. We will just keep going down the spiral of sin, suffering, more sin, more suffering, because we're in just endless, because sin, as we all know, it never, it never fulfills us. It never fulfills us. We eat more food, we drink more drink, we engage in more sexual morality, we steal more, you name it. We do, we do, we do, we do, because the promise is always there of these things, and our flesh believes these, what the scriptures call, deceptive desires. We believe the deceptive desires, and we just keep following them. Leads to more sin. But character leads to more hope. Leads to more hope. And hope is the certainty of future good. Our pursuit of sin, our self-medicating, desires the immediate good. Hope promises a certain future good. We must wait. We must wait. So what is the future good? What is the future good? Well, the future good, according to this passage, is the promise of life in our mortal bodies. In our mortal bodies. Not when we get to heaven, whatever that is. And we'll hit those in the Revelation series here on the west side. We get into heaven and hell and what those are and what they mean. But for now, for now. So we see that, one, there will be a spirit transformation. The Spirit dwells in us, and the Spirit will transform our bodies. The Spirit will transform our bodies. Now, that's not the promise for immediate healing. It's not. It's the promise that we, in our experience, our thoughts, our dreams, our actions, what we feel, what we see, what we touch, what we hear, all of these things, we will experience in our bodies... Life. Life. And we will feel it as life. And we will enjoy it as life. And even as we get older and our bodies increasingly decay, we through our bodies will experience more life. Because the Holy Spirit is doing a work inside of us that transforms us. And we also know, and I think this is the way God has created us as in His image and is also a work, I believe, of, of the Spirit. But you know that science is now realizing that, that our experiences, they've realized this for a long time, but our, our experiences transform our minds and transform the theology of our, of our brains. And so that the more negative experiences we have, the more negative our thinking and our, and our dreams and our fears and our emotions become. But that the more positive experiences we have, the more that transforms our experiences. And, and what they're increasingly seeing, there's new science out on this, that if we bring and expose the traumatic experiences of our past into a safe, and safe environment, a safe community, a gospel community especially, 
that has a, a, a proper understanding of sin, and we can see that God has forgiven us, and then we can see that we can forgive others because God has forgiven them. When we bring and expose our traumatic experiences into the life of a community of people that love and care for us, you know what happens to those memories and fears and thoughts? They become weaker in their power and they become transformed into the context of a broader life that is increasingly becoming good. And they can see it not as destroying them, but as a means through which God is bringing them through an experience of life. Of life. How can we be certain of this? We come back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the, the apostles and disciples of Jesus did not believe that Christ would be resurrected three days after he was killed because it was not in their conception at all. The scriptures talked of a resurrection, of a future resurrection, but it was a future resurrection for all the people of God in the very, very far future when God would set up his new kingdom. It wasn't this individual experience of resurrection like Jesus experienced. It wasn't that. And when it happened, and this is why the gospel accounts are so important to read through, and we're not going to get into the historicity of the, of, the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ today. If you want to study on that more, there's a great book out on the, on the book table called, um, what's it called? It's written by Craig Evans and N.T. Wright. I think it's called The Three Days, What Really Happened. I know what really happened is the subtitle. But it's a historical look at the, at the days around Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm not going to get into it. But there's only one way that the gospel accounts and the historical accounts, there's only one way that those things make sense. Jesus really did die. And Jesus did really resurrect. And it was a history-changing event. It's a history-changing event. If it is not true, Paul says, we of all people are the most to be pitied. And there is no hope. Period. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead... There is no hope for anybody because death has the final say. Suffering has the final say. And whether you agree with the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or not, my guess is that most, if not all of you, would have a very tough time believing that death and suffering will have the final say. Because there's something in you that tells you that that is just not possible. And that is the image of God in you that says there is a God, there is a future, there is a kingdom, there is no way that suffering and death can have the final say. There is no way. Jesus did raise from the dead, and that is the substance of all of our hope. Is there hope for those that we love? And I think this might be the greatest challenge. I think it's... I think it's I don't, I don't think it's easy to have hope for us. But when we are considering ourselves, we know that we have something to say about it. We think that we have some control over it. 
But when we consider the lives of others, our children, our spouses, our loved ones, our neighbors, our families, our friends, we have no say. We have no control. And when we fall apart because we see our family members falling apart, those are the things that challenge us the most and challenge where we are putting our hope. We cannot know or control the fate of others. There's no way around it. There is absolutely no way around it. We can't do it. We can force people to do things, but behavioral modification isn't a change of the heart. And people of God are people of heart. So we cannot know or control it. But we're still called to rejoice in the midst of our suffering, even suffering that we are experiencing because of loved ones that we have no control over. But here's what I do know in regards to our loved ones. If we act in hope, there's a great book. It's a book about fathers and sons. It's a convicting book. And here's another mind not serving me well this morning. I think it's called Future Hope. I think the book is called Future Hope. But the idea is that fathers have this experience and this dynamic with their sons. And I've experienced this. My father experienced this with me. If you're a father, you get it. If you're a son, you experience it. But fathers see in their sons the here and now. And we're tempted. And we're fearful. And we lose hope in what they could become because the here and now oftentimes looks really discouraging. And we have that tendency to look in all of our circumstances like that. This isn't going very well. I'm fearful that it's going to get worse. And you start projecting. You know, the opposite of of hope is fear. Hope is the certainty of of future good. Fear is the certainty of future bad. And if you don't believe the gospel, future bad is all you can really be guaranteed for. But if you believe in the gospel and the power that God has life over death, Even in the lives of others. You may not be able to control it, but God can. God can. And that hope in God's power at work in the lives of other people has to be your hope. Not hope that that person's going to change, but hope that the power of God is substantial enough to bring about change if it would work out to be that way. If we act in hope, it leads to Optimism, greater hope, greater love, less fear, less anger, more love. Because oftentimes we engage in anger, we engage in in acts from fear, we engage in despair because we've lost our hope, and then those things make things worse. And you continue to push the loved ones away. Because it's not beautiful, it's not attractive, it's not life, it's not promising. 
Acting on hope is the certainty of future good. That the gospel is true. The scriptures teach that Jesus has reconciled, he has made peace with everything between the Father through his death and resurrection. In the gospel, peace, peace is the final word. If you don't believe that, but believe that something bad is the final word, whether it's for yourself or for others, then you're going to live by that fear, and it will make things worse. That I know. I've experienced that. My kids have experienced that. My wife has experienced that. It makes things worse. Any of you seen The Lion yet? It's not really a spoiler. Not very many of you. Raise your hands if you've seen it. Okay. You kind of got to know the story before you go see the movie. All right, so Google was advertising it forever before the movie came out because there's really not a spoiler. There's really not an ending that you are, are unaware of. Um, so the, the story of the lion, it's a true story. Excuse me. This is in the 80s. There's a boy, five years old, with his older brother. And he, he falls asleep. His older brother goes away. He's going to come back. But while his older brother is away, no, no. Uh, older brother doesn't come back. That would be a spoiler. The older brother doesn't come back. No, no, no. That's not the spoiler. Why he doesn't come back is the spoiler. The older brother doesn't come back. So there's this five-year-old boy, he's in India, remote village somewhere, and he gets on a train looking for his brother, falls asleep, wakes up the next day, he's still on the train, he can't get off, falls asleep again. The train basically travels for two days. This is a true story, it's unbelievable. And it ends up 1,600 kilometers from where he started. He doesn't know his mom's last name, doesn't know his last name, and he's 1,600 kilometers from home. He eventually gets adopted by a family in Australia. They raise him until his late 20s, and he's hanging out with some friends, and they say, you know, why don't you check out Google Earth? You can see anywhere in the world through Google Earth. And so you know what he does? After two years, because, I mean, India is huge, and there are over a billion people, and thousands and thousands and thousands of villages, through the few landmarks that he remembered from being five years old, he finds his home. And he flies from Australia to India, takes a train to his village, he walks to his house, and he finds his mother. Yeah, so you're crying all over the place. <laughs> but later in the, you know, they have a little kind of a description of after the movie's over, here's what happened to these people. It says this. His mom never moved from the village because she believed in hope that her son would come back someday. Because if she would have moved, 
there would have been no way that he could have found her. Her hope in her son coming back someday caused her to stay, and he found her. If she would have given up, if she would have, you know, whatever, she, she would have moved, gone somewhere else, gone away from the place of pain where family members died. I thought it was a great example of how hope causes us to think and to act in a way that leads to future good. Now, not, the gospel's not in there in all the places. You can't make it stand on all fours. But it was, a way, it, was, it was an illustration of how our minds think. We must believe in the reconciling of all things to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that somehow, some way, all things are working toward that peace. Somehow, some way. Not everybody gets saved. And we'll talk about what that means again when we hit the, the, those specific points in the book of Revelation. If you're not in Uptown, I've already hit those. But if we don't approach our life hopefully, then we will live in fear and we will live in anger and we will bring destruction to our lives and to the lives of those around us. Is there hope for the world as we conclude here? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, fu- fu- to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, we, for in this hope we were saved. The redemption of our bodies. That's our hope. Not going to heaven, the redemption of our bodies, that what we experience, hear, see, feel, taste, touch, think, dream, all of that will be re- redeemed. See, because we're not going to go to some spirit world where we're like we've got our harps and we're worshiping God all the time. We will be worshiping God all the time, but it's not going to look like we're just singing all the time. We will experience life in a fully redeemed, fully resurrected, not just through the Spirit and His work in our decaying bodies and giving us a sense of fullness in life while we are dying in our bodies. Our bodies will live fully, as well as our hearts and as well as our minds, and there will be no more experience, so food will taste even better. We, We had some dessert this Wednesday night at our Lord's Supper Easter celebration, I basically think it was ground up golden Oreo cookies somehow on steroids. <laughs> I've been into one of those things and I was like, oh my goodness, this is so good. <laughs> See, one of the reasons why I love God so much, this is going to sound silly to you all, but one of the reasons why I love God so much is because the great things that I experience here on earth my wife, my kids, 
food, drink, the outdoors, my relationships with you all, all of those things are going to be exponentially multiplied when we are in heaven. And it's like, whoa, if I can experience this now, even in the midst of things that I'm suffering through, the kingdom is going to be unimaginable. Unimaginable. The Spirit gives life for us to experience great things now, even in the midst of suffering and pain, if our hope is in the gospel. For as Ecclesiastes, the King Solomon said, it is God who gives happiness. That is the hope we have, the redemption of our bodies, the future experience of everything good. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All creation, all creation, no more gas attacks, no more chemical warfare, no more terrorism, no more greed, no more suffering, no more war, no more sickness, no more disease, no more racial tensions and strife and violence, no more politics. Did I hear an amen to that? Yeah, amen. And because this is our hope, and because we have hope in future good, we are called on a mission. We are people characterized by hope. We are people characterized by life. We are people characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are called to proclaim the gospel. We have a mission to the world. We have a call to work. And your work... Your work, do you know what? We have messed this up for hundreds of years. The leaders of the church are called to equip you for the work of service in your contexts. You all, in your vocations in the world, that's the ministry. You are, you are called to bring hope and peace and beauty into the world around you, that's the ministry. And your work is the means through which God has called you to engage in that ministry. Our ministry of the Word is just the beginning of your ministry to the world. And so your creativity, your hard work, your perseverance, your great minds, your physical bodies, your strong selves, all of those things, that's the work of the ministry into this world. And we are called to manifest and bring hope in the kingdom of God to this world. That's, your, that's our work. Beauty in the arts. We're going to spend a little more time on beauty in the arts in the future here at Twin Cities Church. Sermon I gave long ago. Do you know the, the culmination of God's work in the nation of Israel was His Spirit dwelling in the temple, in the tabernacle at the time, as a community in a building whether it was the tabernacle, the tent, or it was, whether it was the temple that Solomon built. You know how many chapters the Bible devotes to the description of the artistry and craftsmanship and the design that went into those places? It is an immense amount of Scripture that goes into describing the beauty and the glory of those places that the arts reflected. The arts reflected the presence of, the, of God in them. 
And beauty needs to be coming out of who we are as a people. Beauty in our marriages, beauty in our families, beauty as a community, beauty in our worship, beauty in our work. Because when things are beautiful, they're attractive. The teachings of Christ in our lives. This is why we can't throw out any of Jesus' teachings. Because they are designed to create beauty. And the world will not agree with the teachings. But the world cannot deny the beautiful. And we can't get to the beautiful without the resurrection. It is the ultimate beauty. It is the ultimate power. It is the ultimate expression of God's love. And it's that love that fills us. It's that love that fills us in the midst of our suffering. Let me pray. Lord God, we are excited about the message of hope in the gospel. We're thankful for it. It's not a it's not a spiritual idea that it that only appeals to wishful thinking. We recognize this, God. We affirm its truth. We affirm its historicity. It's not a superstition. And so God, our, our prayer is that you would deepen us in the power of the resurrection. Give us a great sense of it. Help us to understand it. For its depths are unfathomable. And help us to live it, God, in this world. Help us to be a beautiful and skillful people. In Christ's name, amen.